Hey, Delta Love, and welcome to the 93rd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to erotica to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest comes with a bit of a backstory. Master Tesfation is a Bleacher Report senior writer and a guy whose writing style is excellent, but whose work, uh, I don't always get. And what I mean is, there's a lot of social media engagement, a lot of jersey wearing, a lot of stuff that I've always felt sort of walks the thin line between scribe and fan. So I thought I'd have him on, and maybe, if I'm kind of being honest here, it'd be a little confrontational, awkward even. But instead, I really love this one. Master's a good stand-up guy, and he seems genuinely sincere in his approach. Also, just because a person doesn't follow the path you were taught doesn't necessarily make it wrong, or right, who knows. Anyhow, one programming note. You'll notice in addition to this podcast toward the end, a quick two-minute scat on what I'm working on as a journalist and why it's all probably driving me to drink. Anyhow, here you go with me, with Master, and with two writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Master, first of all, um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I used to write for Bleach Report, which you write for, and a story that's sort of BR mag in many ways is a piece you did last year, late last year that came out, November 21, 2018. Uh, Adrian Peterson is still the same AP. You caught a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of shit for this story. The grief you caught was about sort of, you know, Adrian Peterson, it turns out, is still kind of punishing his kids by spanking them and sometimes using a switch on them. And people kind of criticize the piece for treating that lightly. And I just think it's a really tough thing to deal with and a tough thing to write about. How did you handle the backlash? Um, the backlash was interesting. Um, it was difficult at first because as a journalist, you never want the focus to be on yourself. And I think that's the part that bothered me the most. Cause I do, obviously I do other things like on air personality things, uh, that involve me and my personality that I don't care if I get any flack for that or any criticism for that because that's, that's me. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. But as a journalist, you're trying to be as objective as possible to tell the most accurate story that you possibly can about the subject. And you want the focus to be on the subject. So I think that's the part that bothered me the most about that was that there was, the and even if it's just two percent of the, the the attention was on me that 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 there was a slice of attention that was on me and not on the story so that part bothered me that I feel it was just um not really I think the biggest argument was in terms of the structure of it to which a lot of traditionalists believe that I should have led with the information that uh Adrian Peterson still spanks his child and yes that obviously is a huge critical part of the story, but as we're starting to see more and more these days, people don't read and they're not going to read a 4,000 word story. What they end up doing is seeing an aggregation from pro football talk, which, you know, uh, fair or unfair, they don't have any African-American writers who aggregate any blogs that they do. And so Mm -hmm. their perspective is very limited on this and they're going to take it from a very newsy perspective of what's the juiciest uh, component of the story And how can I aggregate and flesh that juicy component into a 300, 400 word blog? And with that, you lose all context whatsoever of the story, uh, which uh, the story was part of a focus that I had last year on the Southern black male and particularly in sports and and looking at black identity in sports and how Mm -hmm. we really don't care about Southern black men unless they're playing football or they're rapping. And if you're a black Southern woman, you basically have to be Beyonce to garner any sort of attention whatsoever or a platform that people can care about. And so uh, my attention and my focus last year uh, on my first year at BR Mag, uh, realizing how privileged I am as a young black male in his 20s uh, with this ability of, of, of creative freedom was to uh, give this perspective of, of which I grew up with or around as a person who grew up in, in Dallas, Texas, born and raised in Dallas, Texas, a perspective that I don't see often happening because either a lot of the, the people who are in these positions to write, whether they're journalists or content creators, et cetera, et cetera, uh, are often people who grew up, grow up either on the East Coast, in the Northeast, or uh, or are white. 
and they're they're not either of people of color or black people in general. And so knowing my unique perspective, I wanted to make sure and display that there's more to black people from the South than just the poor black man who grew up without a father, who grew up homeless, and now look at sports and how they saved their lives. Like we've continuously heard and read this narrative uh, that becomes very monotonous and very dull, and it it only dis- it doesn't display the complexities of the southern of southern black men. Um, so that was the focus that I had with stories like Alvin Kamara, like Antonio Brown, and like Adrian Peterson. I guess people thought that I was also being uh, it was a redemption story, which I don't know how you could take that. The story that I wrote is being a redemption story when his agent wrote a uh, a statement basically say, saying some things which weren't true at all because I never contacted the agent at all throughout the story. And the people who were contacted were well aware of the story, what the story was going to be about. So the, the, the redemption part I thought wasn't fair. And I, I guess I can understand from a traditional standpoint why people thought structurally that I could have done some different things. But beyond that, you know. It is what it is these days in social media. If, if people don't agree with a certain subject or they don't agree with a certain person's actions and they already hate this person to begin with, that backlash is just natural. It's going to happen. I think I told you this over DM recently. I wrote Walter Payton's biography about a decade ago. And Walter Payton grew up in Columbia, Mississippi. And when he and his brother Eddie did anything wrong, they were sent out in the back. And you're either picking a switch, a pipe, or a broomstick. And you're picking your punishment. There are many, many people who just don't know that if you were raised in the South and you're African-American during a certain time period, the odds are you experienced some variation of that. I think clearly what you were trying to explain is something people didn't really want to hear, which is, it's almost like, I'm not saying what Adrian Peterson did was right, but there is a reason Adrian Peterson did what he did. But it seems like it is a really, really hard thing to explain that. Yeah, 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 I I agree with you on that, and um, I think the part that kind of got lost in that was that that I was condoning this action, which I think was clear that I was expressing how excessive it was, and even Adrian was telling uh, his remorse about that specific situation. There was a quote Trent Williams had that I think I got really lost in this entire conversation because I think I took for granted in this current culture and this current climate that people would display a certain level of understanding or even empathy towards not only just what it's like being a black man in America, but also a Southern black man in America, understanding the racism and the fear that you constantly live in. And I think Trent Williams had a great quote that got overlooked that kind of really personifies why the majority of people from the South, particularly those of people of color, discipline their children in a certain way. Uh, he said, quote, that's what keeps you planted. I don't understand how a person can be in such scrutiny for wanting a child to behave a certain way. If he were to ignore that and let his child behave in any type of way and you let this people in the world discipline him and give him consequences for his mistakes, the chances are you could be burying your son prematurely. And he was coming from a perspective as a black father, making sure that you you have a burden on you that you have to make sure that your child doesn't act up when he leaves his house because any sort of action taken, even if he does the right thing, as we've seen constantly in society with unarmed African-American men who are being shot, killed by police, even if you were doing the right thing as a black man or woman or a black person in America, particularly in the South, you can die for just being black. And I think that was ultimately what Trent Williams was trying to get at. And I think that there is this, you know, there's this gray area in which how, how do you discipline your children? How do you do your best to, Make sure that once your child leaves his house, that he does come back or she does come back or, you know, and I think that was a fine line of which in 4,000 words, you're trying to figure out how much of this do I need to explain and how much of this do I not? And my biggest question basically was I'm trying to understand, you know, from all of this, he's had a couple of years to reflect back on all of this. Um, what has he learned? And I think that question is something that, I had to make sure that I kept objective because, you know, what one person thinks that he has learned based off how he disciplines his child to another person, that means he hasn't learned anything at all. To someone else, it could mean that he learned a whole lot. So I did not feel it was within my right as a writer to inject my voice into that. If they think he's a bad person, they still think he's a good person. That's that's ultimately the reader's job to decide that. I didn't feel that it was my job to conclusively say 
this is how you should think about Adrian Peterson. Ron Slavin, the agent for Adrian Peterson, issues a statement. There's nothing more important to Adrian Peterson than being a good father to his children. The Bleacher, uh, the Bleacher Report approached the Washington Redskins and Adrian are doing a story about his resurgence on the field and his leadership in the locker room. Adrian's trust with this reporter is violated when he discussed what happened four years ago. Adrian learned some valuable, several valuable lessons four years ago, thanks in part to his suspension and counseling he underwent during and afterward. The writer attempted to focus on four years ago rather than who Adrian is now as a father. Since signing with the Redskins, he's been an outstanding teammate and leader on and off the field, blah, blah, blah. First of all, it's the most freaking ridiculous statement of all time because Peterson could have just said, I don't want to talk to you about that. And then you don't have an issue. And number two, the story was like, I thought it was a very positive piece on Adrian Peterson. Um, I don't know. You see this statement. Are you mystified? Like, what's your reaction when you see it? Um, <laughs> uh, it, I really don't know what to say on that. Um, and <laughs> like, I saw a statement and basically it, it is what it is type of stuff. Like, you know, the game and you know, he's an agent. He's there to protect his client. And it was just best to just leave it at that. And once I read that, you can kind of, you can clearly see there was a lot of inaccuracies in what he was saying. Um, that, you know, I just, I just stayed quiet throughout the entire thing. I just felt like that was the best thing to do. So. Well, why is that though? Aren't we allowed to? I like, I always feel like throughout my career, I've always defended my reporting if I feel it deserves, needs to be defended. And every now and then I've apologized. Like, aren't you allowed to say at the time, this is bullshit, you know, like this is ridiculous or. Maybe he's right, you know, one or the other. Like, aren't we allowed to defend ourselves? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I don't think anything about that statement was accurate. Again, it's that's part of the game. You know, it's it's all about an image game. And to me, it's like I understand the impact that it has, the kind of the the significance it has. But when when something is false, like, what's the point of addressing it? Like, that's kind of always a perspective I always come from. I guess back when I was younger, it'd be completely different. Where I'd want to have some sort of sarcastic remark to that. But these days, man, when things are false, man, I have no reason to respond to them. They're not worth my time or energy or effort to even consider even a comeback to that stuff or a response to that. So that's kind of how I approached that. Was I, I knew exactly how I approached it. I knew exactly what I was saying. I didn't breach anyone's trust on that, and I kept it moving. Right. See, I think a lot of times what happens is stories come out, and the people we write about are either embarrassed by sort of the story or they're taken off guard that you wrote an unbiased piece and they're in the immediate reaction. Oftentimes I've certainly had this is what the hell I didn't see. I, I didn't, this is what, you know, how is this the thing? And then they panic. And then later on they end up apologizing to you. But at the moment they're kind of panicky about it. And I feel like that happens a lot. I've dealt with the other stories before, but never of this magnitude. And when I was at sports illustrated back in the nineties, early two thousands, um, you were, you didn't have to worry about some guy coming back at you on social media and then all his followers ripping you to a shred, you know, filling up your timeline, making you miserable, blah, blah, blah. Like it just wasn't a worry. You worried about writing the best story and then you moved on to the next story and you worried about writing the best, next best story. Like social media, I feel like social media is a, is there are good things about it. I feel like it's more of a poison than anything else. I really do in this regard. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on that. It, it's funny, too, because social media shows you how many people think they know what journalism is. And in reality, they have no idea what goes into all this. Like, there's people who literally tell you, like, you missed the story and you should have done this, this and this on this and this. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there are people who are experts in that field that actually have good points on that. And it's great growing lessons and learning lessons from that. But. Uh, it, I don't know. I just, I just always find it funny the amount of people that feel like they can understand or do your job, uh, when they have no clue what goes on in the background, um, just to tell a story. It, it's, it's a very interesting time, uh, with that. And I don't know if it's going to get any better or if it's just going to continuously get worse in terms of just access to do these features. But, um, uh, in its current state right now, it's, it's extremely difficult to try and sell a feature story in 2019. All right, so I'm fascinated by another story you wrote. You wrote a piece on uh, Antonio Brown. came out September 27th of last year. Antonio Brown is putting people on game. And obviously at the time he was, you know, I, he still is, but at the time he was with the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was kind of heading at the early part of last season before mm -hmm. all the craziness kind of erupted. I'll give the lead real quick. Your lead is Antonio Brown sits shirtless and barefoot. 
chilling in a leather armchair. He looks relaxed, even as everything happening around him seems hectic. It's July. We're inside his hotel room at the Intercontinental Kansas City at the Plaza Hotel, inside his room. Uh, Brown stares at the warm exuberance of his three sons in front of him. Autonomy and Ali twirl. Wow, he's a son named Aut- Autonomy? Mm-hmm. That's a freaking yes, great name. Is. Autonomy, that's a great, that's name. A great <laughs> name. Great name. Autonomy <laughs> and Ali twirl around in the curtains before breaking out their toy sports cars. Then they jet into the adjacent hotel room to visit their mom and Brown's girlfriend, uh, Chelsea Kyrus. Meanwhile, Apollo, the youngest had just turned one, excitedly crawls around the floor. This is light, Brown's friend and videographer, Theo Smith, says of the kids' enthusiasm. The noise and movement doesn't appear, don't appear to have phased Brown. There's a serenity about him in this brief moment, and it's not just because of how comfortable he looks. And then you sort of go on to describe uh, the scene, and, and here he is. Um, I'm fascinated by a lot of things. First of all, why this story? Like, why Antonio Brown? And how did you get the access? And how much access did you end up getting? I was, and I still am, I'm very fascinated by Antonio Brown. Not only just his personal life and what he's gone through, but also obviously his career. And um, I don't know, this was at a time when um, I had initially met him at the Super Bowl the previous year in Minneapolis. And he was he was speaking out in a way that I thought was just, it was different. Um, he was... He was skipping OTAs for the first time in his career, was very opinionated on social media uh, about his past, uh, particularly things he's gone through in the Steelers organization, whether it's Bruce Arians or Mike Tomlin, kind of the doubt that he received uh, to get to the point where he's at, where uh, at the time was uh, the best receiver in the game. Uh, then he comes back from OTAs and literally is talking about, am I really free? And him asking that question just... I, I was just, I, I don't know. I just wanted to know more. Like, you know, what's kind of causing, what causes someone to ask that question, particularly an NFL athlete, particularly someone that people consider is the best wide receiver in the game. And you could just kind of tell there were some things as he, he, he spoke, uh, some things going on in the background that I was just, I don't know. I was just very curious about. I wanted to know more of. So, um, I got hit up, uh, literally I was at summer league and I got hit up, uh, by his camp to go spend a day with him uh, in Missouri for this Destroy the Doubt Tour on Nike. Uh, so I leave Vegas to go there for a day. Uh, and, you know, in his hotel room, we're on the tour bus, you know, hanging out with his family. Then we go to the the field for the event, you know, follow him around for that. I uh, wish I had more time to uh, interview him, which I was trying to get some more time afterwards, but it didn't work out. I think I was able to talk to him for maybe about, officially interview him for about 20 minutes. Um, 20 but, minutes? Yeah, I was I was definitely hoping to get some more time, and that's kind of why I held on to it for so long after the July thing. Was I was hoping to catch him in training camp, but then he kept speaking out, and I uh, wasn't able to get access to him at training camp. You know, as he's t- uh, talking about the reporters and going off on Twitter, uh, it, it just wasn't possible. And so, uh, you know, as all this is going on, I'm just kind of just tracing along all these instances of what she's going through, and I kind of tie it up. Uh, with that Monday night game when he faced the Bucks, And I felt like that was the right time to drop it afterwards because, uh, you know, he finally scores a touchdown and he talks about his dynamic with Big Ben and tries to use an analogy, uh, which I end the story with, about how, uh, you know, he likes when Big Ben basically gives him affirmation and tells him, like, you know, he's doing well. And uh, he uses an analogy like how it's like when he, goes and grabs groceries from the car and makes you want to go get more groceries when your girl's telling you you look all strong and buff and you look really good grabbing those groceries. So uh, it was an analogy that was kind of very loose, but, you know, you could tell that Antonio was at least trying to express himself. And I think ultimately that's kind of what I took away from this entire experience is that uh, there just was a lot of emotional immaturity in which uh, Antonio Brown has often had to silence himself to get to the point that he's at um, because he had, he has, he didn't have much guidance growing up in, in Liberty City, which has produced so many athletes, but is also a very difficult and rough environment in inner city Miami. Um, you know, was literally kicked out of the house and, you know, you know, sleeping on couch to couch in high school. You know, he's a walk on at Central Michigan, a six round pick. So you can just assume and, and imagine how much he's had to be quiet throughout this entire journey. And through that silence, He's unable to actually understand how he feels or, or really be in tune with his emotions because his ultimate job is 
to basically escape poverty. And being in that fight or flight mode is something that I think Antonio Brown is still in. And I don't know if he knows another mode to which operate in. And I think that part of it I was just so fascinated by because it's at this point he's been so successful doing this. Like I'm, I'm learning even through as I go through therapy over the last few months, we've been finding certain things in your childhood which you grew up in, or as your uh, certain defense mechanisms of which you create for yourself. There are certain moments in your life that you, as you grow up, that you no longer need them, and they end up being more detrimental than they are beneficial. And I think right now you're starting to see that with Antonio. I have a lot of questions about this story. So I, this story I literally printed out and I have it marked up. And I was thinking from an old Sports Illustrated perspective, some of the things here. Um, first of all, I kind of feel like if I'm in your shoes, but maybe it's different because I'm older. If I'm getting 20 minutes with a guy, there's a little bit of a temptation for me to say, fuck this. Like I'm not 20 minutes. How can I write your story in 20 minutes? That's, that's kind of... Is it possible to write someone's story and really do it justice with 20 minutes of access? I understand completely where you're coming from in terms of whether 20 minutes is enough or not. Uh, it's just the current state of sports journalism right now where I'm completely jealous of the era in which you grew up in, which you even have to ask that question because there's a lot of people my age who think 20 minutes is more than enough. Um, and I, I would have loved to have more time, and I think I could have used more time on this. Uh, however, you know, secondary interviews uh, with some follow-ups, which I did afterwards, um, and keeping tabs with people around him. Um, and also, the, the thing that we also have the benefit of is social media, which, as much as you want to hate it, a guy like Antonio Brown, who couldn't stop tweeting, and he couldn't stop talking, uh, either through social media or to the media itself, uh, helps kind of fill in some of these pieces as well as you base what you already have from the interview, from observing him from the secondary interviews with the current actions in which he's uh, displaying. And so mm -hmm. I think the emotional immaturity aspect component to it was just completely obvious and so clear. Uh, I think the part that I just need to flesh out a little bit more was what ultimately was he, what is he trying to accomplish now? What is he trying to strive for? And I think that's ultimately something Antonio Brown still doesn't even know. Besides, you know, trying to be the greatest ever, uh, wide receiver wise, uh, I think the uh, the other part in which the the follow-ups allowed me to find out was um, he he wants to be the LeBron James of the NFL um, in terms of uh, you know using his voice to speak up and have authority behind it uh, with social change, with change in the NFL. Uh, because the NFL is structured in a way that it's very military, it's very militarized and very chain of command in a way that doesn't allow for individuality and limits the, uh, exposure in which NFL athletes are capable of getting. Uh, obviously the average NFL, uh, career is three seasons. So the exposure is a different component of which it would benefit the NFL athletes to have longevity, uh, with their, their likeness or their brand or their image. If they're able to uh, mar uh, profit off that and benefit off the platform that the NFL provides. Uh, however, that, as we've often known, is not possible in the current structure of the NFL. Uh, but then you look at the NBA and, you know, you can damn near say anything you want to. And so I think right. there's a side of Antonio Brown that feels like he is as one of the faces of the league, as someone who, you know, is the first person to come on the Madden cover without his helmet on. And a recognizable face, uh, he is has a, a platform and opportunity to do so. It's just he has been so quiet for so long that he doesn't know how to express himself. So Antonio Brown, which I didn't know until I read your story, he got really pissed at the undefeated when they ran a piece on him. They reached out to his ex girlfriend and past people uh, he was associated with. He clearly didn't like that. You mm -hmm. have a paragraph in your story where you write. Um, Growing up, he had an estranged relationship with his father, touchdown Eddie Brown, arguably the greatest player in arena football league history. The two have since reconciled. A.B. lived with his mother and stepfather until they kicked him out of his house. You know, Brown told ESPN's Dan Lebertard in 2012 it was due to the relationship with his stepfather who forced him to sleep couch to couch at 16. Okay. You as a writer doing a story about Antonio Brown, do you try talking to touchdown Eddie Brown? Do you try talking to his parents? Do you try talking like... What on the one hand, this guy's giving you access and he wants you to do this. Like, 
how far are you willing to go to try to find the dad touchdown Eddie Brown? Oh yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm trying to talk to them. Yeah, it's just the matter of like I had his number and contacted him and tried to call him multiple times. It's just a matter of them not not never, never getting that response back on that. So yeah, you you definitely try to contact as many people as you can around him. It's just do you worry about him being pissed about it. When you're writing a story about someone, do oh. you worry about him being like, why the fuck did you call that person? Um, no, never. No, I can't be. Um, that's, that's my job. <laughs> I, I, I can't really be concerned if someone's going to be pissed off at me or not. Cause I honestly, it, it, it has no concern or it has no value to what I do. All right. And you have one line that I have underlined. Cause I, I am, I actually read it five times because I'm fascinated by it. And I don't know if I agree with you or disagree with you. And maybe it spoke to me now. He's an older white guy. I don't know. But you wrote, um, he hasn't always been successful at this. He played with raw emotion his entire career. Uh, raw emotions don't necessarily translate well into lucid thoughts. Maybe that's why reporters, many of them old and white, who don't know anything about the struggles of a black man from inner city Miami, haven't been able to catch the complicated layers. This is like the ongoing thing that I actually, I'm fascinated by. Does it give you, as Antonio Brown's contemporary, you're also African-American and you're relatively close to him in age, does it give you any advantage over whatever me, 46-year-old Jeff or, you know, whatever, 50-year-old someone or 25-year-old white guy reporter writing a, a piece about Antonio Brown? It gives me a perspective. And that perspective creates better questions. Um, I mean... I don't know how much you know about my background, but I grew up in Section 8 in Dallas. I didn't grow up from much. Um, both of my parents were uneducated. Uh, I grew up in a very toxic household um, and pulled out six figures in loans to try and make the journalism thing work, which was a super last minute idea that I had because my senior high school, I approached my teacher and told him either I was going to join the military or become a comedian because Dave Chappelle just left Comedy Central and I knew... <laughs> At least some black dudes worth $20 million because they're telling me or whatever it was that Dave Chappelle's offered because that's exactly what he was given. And he walked away from that. Um, and right. it wasn't until then that I was told I was just so naive. I didn't know anything about how a lot of these careers and professions worked that you could obviously get paid to write about sports journalism because all I saw was former athletes on there. And I thought foolishly enough that they were doing this for free just to get notoriety. So right. that perspective and the experiences of which I've gone through when it comes to poverty, when it becomes comes to being a poor black from the South and in America, uh, those experiences give me that perspective that a white man will never understand. And that's that's kind of where I was going with that. And it's conversations I often have with other black athletes in the locker room is the, the difficulty with having that level of connection uh, with reporters who aren't like them or didn't grow up like them or don't look like them um, and how hard it is for them to understand the life that they live. And that disconnect, I think, uh, is is a, a larger issue in in, in, uh, in in journalism because of the lack of diversity, particularly when it comes to sports media, when a lot of these athletes are African-Americans. However, the people who cover them, who display uh who display who they are or are, are paid to tell their stories don't look like them at all either. And I, I ultimately feel like that perspective, if you want to call it an advantage, I don't know. I mean, I guess, yeah. And technically I guess it is, but I mean, the reality is what kind of advantage do I have as someone who grew up poor and black, you know, like, yeah, no, I don't it, think advantage is very, the right word. Actually. It's, yeah, it's, right. it's one of the, one of the few spaces I guess in which I get, Poverty, it works from in my favor. I, I don't know how often I'd want to cash that check in. I don't disagree with anything you just said. There's nothing you just said that I disagree with. I guess the example I would use is that um, as women are going through this Me Too movement uh, and experiencing that and sharing their uh, their experiences in this, as much as you want to read and research and try to empathize and understand, we as men will never understand because we are the privileged right. gender. And in the same way, race operates in that same manner. Uh, as much as, as white reporters want to read up on, uh, the struggles of African Americans and what they've gone through in the history of racism in America and, you know, empathize right. as much as they possibly can, they are, they, they still won't understand the totality of what it's like being black in America. And that's the perspective of which I think it, 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 it lacks 
there needs to be more of more African Americans, more people of color, more uh, more women to share these perspectives because they have questions that they ha- can ask because of what they've gone through and those experiences they've gone through that other people cannot. Is it the questions or is it that you understand where they're coming from? Yeah, that's, but that's what provides the questions is that it, those experiences yeah. is the, the, it adds a, a depth of questions that you will even if you want to read about this, it's it, I talk to this all the time about with June Lee, who's also a writer at BR mag mm-hmm. uh, and his experiences as a Korean Korean American and, and the stories that he shares, particularly when he shares stories of Korean athletes, there is a perspective of which he has as a Korean American that I will never understand. And even as much as he wants to share all these perspectives for me and I can read up all of them all I want to, there are certain questions of which he asks these athletes that I would never even think of. And that's kind of, that's how, uh, you know, we're able to display the complexities of these athletes in a way that often aren't provided because there aren't many people of color or, or women uh, in these positions to tell these stories. Yeah, I think that's very well said. When you have a diverse staff, you have a better publication, period. I don't even think there's any debate about that. I agree. Yeah. And it, it also, that, that, again, as I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast too, is that like, the reason why I felt that burden on me to tell these kind of stories is because I look around and I realize how privileged I am to be in this position as a young black male in sports journalism. And as much as I would want to do a lot of fun stories and goofy, wacky stories, I, I feel like I'd be doing a disservice. I mean, I still mix those in, obviously, but there is a, there is a, a burden and there is a, um, a responsibility that you hold being in this position to tell these kind of stories. And I understand based off my experiences last year that everyone will understand it. And that's, under, that's fine. And, and that's something that was a great learning lesson for me last year. But I have to keep telling these stories because if I'm a young black male covering other young black males in sports and I'm not able to share these stories in a way that humanizes them, that makes them genuine, authentic, that displays uh, a perspective of black life that people have never heard before, even experienced or even understood before, then you're basically always wondering then who will. And that's something that I carry with me every single day. Here's a super weird question for you. I am, uh, I'm 46. Tom Brady's, I don't know, 41. God damn you all say I know, I know. You know what? You'll get there very quickly. You will get there very quickly. I assure you. He, Brady's 41. He's a white guy from suburbia. I'm a white guy from suburbia. Do I have an advantage writing a Tom Brady story over you? Uh, in some ways, yeah. But you also have to understand. Really so. You have to also understand this, this is the part where. I would I would hesitate with that as well is because as a black man in America, I have like I'm 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 interacting with white people every single day. Like that is not an option that I have. Mm-hmm. There are white people who can live in America without interacting with black. people. Like we've seen redlining that is operating in Chicago, particularly with the freeways that allows you to go from. Your, your, your job in downtown back to your suburban home without engaging and interacting with, with, with people of color. So there is a perspective in which you understand as you deal, uh, as you interact with different, uh, whether it's white people from the north or the south, et cetera, et cetera. There is a, a vast perspective of, uh, of, of white people that you encounter and that you learn and you understand, and you become friends with them and, you engage and discuss with them, you know, and you get to know them. The question I constantly have when it does come with Tom Brady is why hasn't anyone followed up with him about his allegiance with Donald Trump during the campaign? That's ultimately, I don't think that question is something that, I mean, who's going to be the person to ask that question? And that's, why not you? Why not you? 
I don't even, I write books. I don't even write these articles anymore. You write for Bleach Report. I don't even have a job. You're the one to ask the question about <laughs> talking to Tom Brady. Like, that's, that's, like, ultimately, that's the question that also has to be asked is that who, who's going to ask that question? Because I feel this burden constantly on me to tell these stories of Southern black men in the South. Who feels the burden to ask Tom Brady the question about his allegiance with Donald Trump? The, again, the majority of the writers in sports media look just like Tom Brady. That's, that's something yeah. that's been on my mind constantly. And so I hate, I cannot stand Donald Trump. I may make that clear on social media. Why is that a question? It's a follow up in terms of his political allegiance and his decision to jump in on politics. And we've constantly tried to shun other people who have tried to, if you wanted to even describe it politics when it was more so just uh, a social movement, whether it was obviously Colin Kaepernick taking a knee for police brutality and social inequality or other athletes with, you know, I can't breathe shirts that the NBA was uh, athletes were wearing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Women trying to find ways that they can have equal pay. We all consider that within the political realm and they received a lot of criticism for that. Where is mm-hmm. this criticism for Tom Brady for using his significant and huge platform to endorse Donald Trump. When, when did he actually endorse Trump? And I, again, I hate it, Trump. I don't even know. But did he endorse Trump? It, I mean, having a hat in the locker room, I mean, is that yeah. any more or less an endorsement towards him or not? I mean, I, I would, I would think so. Before we continue with two writers, Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And today we're at a clay studio making pottery. That's a beautiful flower pot. It's not a flower pot. It's an ashtray? Why would it make an ashtray? We don't smoke. Door handle? What? Cat slippers? You're being weird again. All right, I give up. What is it? It's an explosive artistic rendition of the inner beauty of 503 Sports, the best place in the world to get throwback hats, t-shirts, jerseys. It says, with 503 Sports, there is hope, and God is good, and love rules the day. It speaks to the goodness in the world through the prism of a visit to 503-sports.com. Seriously, it looks like a flower pot, like a squishy one. You'll never understand genius. I'll tell you a story that I desperately, desperately want to see written. And I pitched What's before it? and never had it approved. I think um, there has to be a story about all these coaches, these generally white college coaches going into the inner cities, recruiting African-American athletes, you know, 19-year-old to 18-year-old kids. Meanwhile, the vast majority of college coaches I've come across are conservative Republicans. So they're actually voting for people who are generally voting against the very social programs that make a lot of the inner city activities possible. But they go into the inner city, get the athletes, take them to their campus for four years, oftentimes leave without an education, throw them back into the inner city afterwards. And you see, and these coaches keep getting a pass. So they're never asked about their <clears throat> politics. And it actually drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean, the the two teams in the national championship this past year, I think that's a great example of of, of the the situation that you're setting up right now. I think, I think that's a great question. It's a matter of how, how, how could you possibly go about that? And I think that ultimately does need to be addressed as well because, you know, how is that possible? How can you operate in this space? And not necessarily, I mean, if you want to call it getting away with it, but uh, no level of accountability towards it. And I think that ultimately is what you know, the question I asked with Tom Brady and the question that you're asking right now with this is, is all about accountability with these levels of, of contradiction that, that occur within sports, uh, when sports and society collide is how can you say one thing and it means completely a different thing in your actions. Let me ask you a final thing. You are very busy on social media. I feel like there's some things you do on social media that I find hilarious and entertaining and great. Other things, <laughs> a little. I'm a little unsure of, and this, you just noted how old I am. So maybe this is a difference. You know, like I'm staring at a picture of you wearing a jersey from the all-star game and you thank Mitchell and Ness. I imagine they gave you the jersey. Does that not violate a little bit of a journalistic something and something? Uh, in terms of what Mitchell Ness, it's, I mean, giving free stuff, taking free. I mean, when I, yeah, go ahead. In terms of what I, there's also like an on-air contract obligation to which I have, uh, at Bleacher Report. So, there's also a personality side in which I do display and that 
I use social media to do that. And amongst those things is uh, something I do called BR Out Here, in which I take over uh, Bleacher Report's Instagram account uh, every Thursday during the NFL season. Uh, pick a team to root for, put on a throwback jersey, and embrace myself with the fans at the bar. And what that does is it's also storytelling. It's a firsthand experience of what it's like to be a fan of the certain team. Um, it's obviously a, a different way of displaying that uh, than what you're used to in terms of your traditional journalism. Uh, however, I do feel that is a new digital way to, and a new social way to share uh, and, and, and tell a story uh, of how a fan base interacts, how they watch their games, uh, what, what kind of rituals they have, uh, you know, what do they do in terms of the, the famous players in which they are notoriously known for supporting long after their careers, et cetera, et cetera. That is something that I've embraced in terms of the fan experience, uh, which will continue over the next couple of weeks with Champions League, uh, obviously with Turner having the rights towards that, uh, which I will do and potentially as well. Uh, in other sports. So the fan experience is something that I embrace. Uh, I, I understand where you're coming from. <clears throat> if I was at the Washington Post, I wouldn't be doing that. Uh, however, at Bleacher Report, it, because we have such an emphasis on sports culture, that is what I am displaying. And that is something that is very authentic uh, to who I am personally, because I've always admired and appreciated jerseys. And so uh, there's a huge jersey collection I've had uh, for the longest um, when it comes to soccer jerseys, I often wear a lot of those in the summertime. I could probably go all three months in the summertime wearing a different jersey, uh, different NBA jerseys. Um, and then now with the obviously BR out here collecting the throwback jerseys and, and I intentionally do throwback jerseys because I don't want to wear current jerseys of, of players who are active because that, that crosses the line to me personally of kind of athlete what I do, uh, where it's different if I'm wearing like a Shannon Sharp jersey rather than, you know, at a bar wearing a Khalil Mack jersey because who knows if I ever have to write a story about Khalil Mack. Man, I just got to say, like, this is nothing personal, but there's nothing you just said that I feel good. I just, I believe in a separation of church and state. Like, I think if there's a picture of you, like there's a picture of you, I'm looking at wearing a Cowboys jersey and then you do a Redskins story. And if I think the Redskins story is even slightly slanted against the Redskins, I say, well, what? What do you expect? The guy's wearing a cowboy jersey. He's a cowboy fan. I just feel like it opens up to something. And maybe it's because I'm in my 40s and not in my 20s. There's something about that that goes against everything I learned as a young journalist. Yeah, but, I mean, we, we got in a big fight over that uh, on Twitter because I was wearing an Arizona State hoodie. And then uh, <laughs> but that was a little misguided to me because you did go to Arizona State. So yeah, I, feel like and then I decided to troll you with like seven different tweets of my di collection of Arizona State jerseys. Um, I, I think I think social media is is in terms of the way that it's used, though, like the thing that I've kind of always disagreed about journalism is mm -hmm. the objectivity is is a very fascinating concept and the ability to not display any sort of bias. Um, social media basically throws an entire wrench on that concept in journalism. And I think honestly, the best way to use social media is to display your bias because that makes you as transparent as possible about who you are personally. And that gives but the do you have better team biases. Like, do you want no. the Cowboys to win a football game? I mean, I just jumped back on the Cowboys bandwagon. Uh, it was just kind of just something loose and lighthearted. I did um, when I was on ESPN radio with John Jock Taylor, who's one of my mentors. Um, I had said if the Cowboys win one playoff game, I'll jump back on the bandwagon and they won. So I'm right. becoming this obnoxious Cowboys fan on social media. But the reality is it has no impact in terms of the writing that I do because I've been so ingrained to understanding how to tell a story without having any sort of bias, particularly when it comes to the NFL. It's, it's, it's something I don't, I don't play around with. So. No, like I'm literally as Jason Witten is unretiring um, today. I'm cracking jokes about how terrible he was on on ESPN Monday Night Football and how probably terrible he's going to be this year. It's it's not anything different for me towards uh, him that I wouldn't display uh, on anyone else in the league. So it's it's a perspective of which you display, you know, your thoughts. I don't know. I, I think that's the, I think that's the best way to use it is just to be as transparent as you possibly can rather than 
trying to omit and, and make yourself seem like a robot when in reality, the more personal you become uh, and the more authentic you display yourself, there's a personal connection that you can have with your audience that allows you to understand that allows them to understand kind of your perspective on life and how you view things. And I think that ultimately is more beneficial to not only just yourself as a writer, but also to the audience than it is trying to withhold that when there are times in which it is obvious the bias in which you display. But see, I don't um I really mean this. I grew up in New York. I grew up a Mets fan. I grew up a Nets fan. I grew up a Jets fan. I got to Sports Illustrated and I just kind of said, fuck it. Like, I'm not rooting for anyone anymore. I actually don't care. And I probably haven't cared since then. I enjoy watching games. I guess every now and then you root for a nice guy to do well. I don't know. But like, and that bias, perhaps. How can I read your stories on nice guys when I know that you're viewing them from a certain perspective? Like that, that, See, that I notion. Of- Wait, I actually agree with you. I actually yeah. think if I'm like, if people know that I'm a fan of blank, right? I'm a fan of, uh, Jacob deGrom of the Mets and he's pitching against so and so. I just feel, see, I think perception is reality. And I think if people think I'm a Met fan and I'm covering the Mets, whether I'm writing with a bias or not, they're going to look for every bias they can find, thereby actually creating a bias that maybe wasn't there. And that's my sort of issue with it. What are you going to do? Stop writing about nice guys then? Like that's, that's no, stop writing about baseball. I'm saying, but like you, your notion of you, you supporting nice guys, like you can't just, no, all I'm not saying stop. honestly that what you're saying there is no different from a lot of journalists in sports media. If they find someone to be nice and humble and, you know, grounded and works hard, they're naturally going to root for them to do well. I think we can both agree on that. I guess, but do I need to express it? You're saying I'm doing the no, reader I, a service I, by expressing it. But I'm saying, but we see these stories written all the time because Jason Witten is the nice guy, you know, and how many stories have been written about him being a nice guy? It, that's what I'm saying, though, is that that becomes so obvious and so apparent. What what justice are you or what good are you doing from hiding that from the audience when it's so apparent that any Jason Witten story that you write is going to write about how nice of a guy he is? That like that's I think that's ultimately what I'm getting at is that the transparency component of that avoids any if anything, it allows you to connect with the audience and the reader more than you would trying to pretend like you don't think Jason Witten is a nice guy because then you're just lying. And that does even a greater disservice towards the, the audience because you're trying to hide something that is clear to the person reading the story. Writing about someone who is a nice guy. So let's say I'm doing a Jason <clears throat> Witten profile and I interview his teammates and they all think he's a nice guy. Well, you're writing a story about him being a nice guy because people think he's a nice guy but I wouldn't be writing a story about Jason Witten being a nice guy because I think he's a nice guy. Go ahead. Yeah. There, I feel like there is some influence that would happen that you would view him also as a nice guy. I think that Funny naturally is, I've actually happen. enjoyed writing about the jerk more than the nice guys. And I, also, I, guess I have too, because I think the, yeah. compli- the complication and the complexity, the complex of layers that they have, I think is more fascinating than writing about the nice guys. I'm right yeah, there with you. So. Man. It, it's just, yeah, that's, right. that's kind of, that, that's kind of where it goes though, is what I'm saying is that, some, sometimes you can read a story about someone and you could see the infatuation a writer has with them. What good sure. are you doing trying to like, well, it, 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 as much as you would want to hide it, it is still going to be displayed. And at that point, what, what, what good are you doing trying to hide that from the audience when ultimately you would be, if, if even approached about that and you're displaying and talking about how objective you were and that you don't do any bias and this, this, and this. Those lies as a journalist that, that to me kind of also hampers your credibility. It's an interesting, yeah, that, that's the place of I come from. And I mean, I'm never like when it comes to Arizona state, I'm not, you'll never see me write a story on that. Um, uh, when it comes to the Cowboys, I can be, I can be objective about them. It's I, I'm more so just jumping back on the bandwagon because it, it gives me something to talk about with my friends again. Um, because I'm just so far away from home. And they're just so obsessed with the Cowboys and they don't talk about anything else but the Cowboys because that's Dallas, Texas for you. It, it, that's basically the component that personally in which I will casually follow that. But in terms of my reporting and who I am professionally, I, they won't have any impact on that. Would you take a job covering the Dallas Cowboys? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Cause I don't know. There's a lot of factors that would go into that. And a lot of it is probably yeah. money. So <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, Master, this has been, this has been great. Yeah. I feel like your career is in a really interesting place because I feel like it's, um, again, you've come up about two decades after I was coming up. Sports media is in a weird spot. 
to me, it's all summed up in 20 minutes with Antonio Brown. 20 minutes with Antonio Brown 20 years ago, I think a lot of writers are saying, no. And I think, and as you just said, a lot of writers nowadays are like, wow, 20 minutes. The, the more I think about it now, actually, as I look back on it, I actually did have a follow-up interview with Antonio Brown. So it was oh, the 20 right. minutes I was able to get with him that day. And then I was able to get an additional, I think it was about 20, 25 minutes with him on the phone. So I just literally completely blacked out on that. So right. correction on that. Well, thank you for doing this. Seriously, Absolutely. I really appreciate yeah. it. And uh, yeah, I miss New York. How's the pizza in New York these days? It's making me fat as hell. So, um, oh. <laughs> and yeah. I am doing my best trying to adjust to New York City. However, I am a Texas boy at heart. So it is not the best state in America. Right. Stay away from the puddles. Hey, so a new addition to this podcast, I'm going to end with a quick diatribe on what I'm working on and why it's melting my brain. We'll call this segment from the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. So as some of you know and some of you don't, I'm working on my ninth book. It's a chronicling of the 1996 to 2004 Los Angeles Lakers, you know, the Shaq, Kobe, Phil Jackson era. And last week I started writing. And I do something most of my book writing friends don't do, and they're probably smart about it. I report 99% of the book first, and then I sit down and write. So there's no writing as I go along. There are no parallel stages. I report, I set a date, and when that day comes, I write and write and write and write and write for about five months straight. And here's what I have with me when I write. I've got some of the 17, this is no exaggeration, 17,000 pages of notes from my research, which I printed out side by side at the nearby Kinko's. And that costs about 900 bucks to print out, which is a really big expense for this process, but I don't know another way around it. Then I have subject folders stuffed with clips for everyone from Shaq and Kobe to Mike Pemberthy and Samaki Walker. I print out the transcripts for every interview I've done, and that's about 270 interviews for this book. I also now own eh, 40, 50 books related to the topic, the majority of which I bought on eBay for cheap. Yesterday, by the way, I paid 99 cents for Jeannie Buss's autobiography at a thrift store in Santa Ana, California. And these books are marked up and you know, a lot of highlighters, a lot of pens, uh, bent, bent pages. Anyhow, everything's organized chronologically. So this book is going to start, I think, with the 95-96 NBA season. It's Magic's brief comeback to the Lakers. Kobe Bryant is still at Lower Marion High School. Shaquille O'Neal is in Orlando. So every morning before heading out to some random coffee shop, I grab all the folders related to that time period I'm writing about. It's usually me, two bags stuffed with crap, entering a cafe to confuse looks, and an owner who's thinking, ugh, is this guy going to be here all day? I'm not the best customer. And that's... From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. I want to thank today's guest, Master Tesfation, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Master on Twitter at Master Tess and on Instagram at Master underscore T-E-S-F-A-T-S-I-O-N. And you can read his work at Bleacher Report. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.